3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast. It is the 24th of the 2nd, and it's just gone 7.02 in the morning, and I am in the studio with the full team. Yay! Um, Priya, Inez, and Malika. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry, I had your mics down. There you are. Found you. This is so <laughs> exciting. We're all here across two studios because we're being COVID safe. Just a reminder to everybody, keep, uh, you know, Keep up those precautions, wear your mask as much as possible, keep using those rats uh, when you need to isolate, and um, yeah, take care of community. That's all we've got, guys. Um, so maybe we will jump into our run sheet for this very special show. Um, should we say it? We'll say it. Go on. Rosie, this is Rosie's last Thursday breakfast. For, for now. For now. I'm saying for now, which is a classic non-committal me move, really. I love it, though. It leaves the door open, and um, I'm sure we'll get a lot of, you know, fan mail uh, wishing you well. Um, So we'll start off off with what we've got on for the show today. First up, um, I spoke with Martin Hodgson, who's a senior advocate at the Foreign Prisoner Support Service and who co-hosts Curtin the Podcast, along with South Sea Islander and Darnball writer and academic Amy McGuire earlier this week about the shameful crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Australia and the work that he's been doing with Amy and the families of these women to fight for justice and to draw attention to systemic discrimination in the justice system. Um, And we will include this content warning again just prior to playing the interview, but just please be aware that this does contain distressing content. And then we will be joined by Pan from the La Trobe University's Casual Network. They are a group of casualized workers at La Trobe who are dedicated to improving working conditions, not only at La Trobe but at other universities as well. And they join us today to speak on the widespread systemic wage theft of casual staff and the network's recent submission to the Senate Select Committee of Job Security. And then we'll be speaking with Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre. And Jay will be joining Thursday Breakfast to discuss why Services Australia are spying on people receiving welfare payments and to talk about the Anti-Poverty Centre's ongoing campaign to abolish work for the doll. We're then going to be speaking with Fetler, who is an Ethiopian-Australian woman based in Nam, interested in dissecting ideas at the intersection of race, spirituality and communion. She's an emerging artist and writing and producing music, spoken word and sound art. Fetler joins us to speak about her new piece as part of the Signal Soundwalk. And then finally, we'll be speaking with Omo Seika, the author of two acclaimed collections of poetry, These Wild Houses and The Lost Arabs. And that last book also won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. And Omar will join us today to talk about his new novel, Son of Sin, which is out now with a firm press. Absolutely massive show, and I can see that the clock's already working against us. So let's jump into a CSA before we go to headlines. Let's do it. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards 
Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And you're back on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we're going to go into some headlines. So just a warning for this headline for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this story contains the names of an Aboriginal person who has passed away. A call for a national ban on the use of spit hoods has been issued by the Ban Spit Hoods Collective, following the news that the restraint device continues to be used on children in the Northern Territory, and that this use is increasing. The use of the facial restraint has been recognised by Amnesty International as contravening the UN Convention Against Torture. A ban on spit hoods was legislated in South Australia late last year, following a five-year-long campaign by the family of Rajri Rurangu and Gogatha man Wayne Feller Morrison, who died following the use of a spit hood. The Banned Spit Hood Collective is asking people to sign the petition calling for a national ban on the use of spit hoods for children and adults across all jurisdictions. And you can find that petition by searching Ban Spit Hoods Action Network. Similarly, also a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this story contains the name of an Aboriginal person who has passed away. 16-year-old Dungari boy Jai Wright suffered serious head injuries when he was thrown from a motorbike after an alleged police pursuit and head-on collision with a police car. He later passed away in hospital and will be dearly missed, described as a bright and lively boy. Jay's family is calling for an independent investigation away from the New South Wales Police as the police are providing inconsistent and conflicting information. Jai's father, Lachlan Wright, has stated, To be an independent investigation, you can't be a police officer. You can't be a police officer investigating other police officers. That doesn't make sense to me. Additionally, Jai's family will not be making any further comments and have asked for space to grieve. They are not affiliated with any current march, rally or fundraiser, but they will be organising a march in the days and weeks after Jai's funeral. You can also follow Justice for Jai. Thank you. And in Parliament this week, the public hearing 21 of the Disability Royal Commission commenced on Wednesday, focusing on the experiences of people with disability engaging with Disability Employment Services, or DES. The hearing, which is running until Friday, has already highlighted some significant concerns with the operation of such services. Testimony focused on structural barriers to employment reinforced by DES themselves, the system of payments to DAS providing little incentive to keep disabled people in employment, and significant concerns about the operations of provider Aim Big. Mia Gwynn, manager of the Youth Disability Advocacy Service, also gave testimony about the failures of DES for disabled young people with little access to information about the system and their rights. The Australian government is in the process of designing a new disability employment support model, which is scheduled to commence from mid-2023. And lastly, few WA prisoners have had COVID-19 booster jabs despite Omicron's steady rise. Only 65% of prisoners in WA are double or triple vaccinated against COVID-19, according to figures released by the state government. Not a single inmate at four adult prisons have had a booster, while the rate at several other prisons is less than 1%. Less than 30% of prisoners in youth detention centres have received at least one dose. By comparison, more than 98% of people aged 12 to 15 in WA have had one or more doses. Shadow Corrective Services Minister Peter Collier said the state government has spruiked the importance of 
high triple-dose vaccination rates, but failed to act in a timely manner for the prison population. And that's all we have for the headlines today, but I just want to draw people's attention to the ongoing um, media debacle and push for anti-trans legislation um, by the Morrison government. So I encourage people to get read up on that and find out what you can do to you know, support the fight back against this discriminatory legislation. And I'm sure we'll have more on that in the coming weeks. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.11 in the morning, and we're going to go to an interview with Martin Hodgson that I conducted earlier this week. Martin is a senior advocate at the Foreign Prisoners Support Service and co-hosts Curtin the Podcast, along with South Sea Islander and Durham writer and academic Amy McGuire. And Martin spoke with me about the shameful crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Australia and the work that he's been doing with Amy and the families of these women to fight for justice and draw attention to systemic discrimination in the justice system. Now, please be aware that this interview does contain distressing content. And if you need to speak with someone about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And now to the interview. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate your energy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is really exciting to be able to talk to you about this work. And I'm wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about the law and justice work that you do with the Foreign Prisoners Support Service and about how you and your collaborator, Darnbal and South Sea Islander woman, Amy McGuire, came to start working together on Curtin the Podcast as well. Yeah, for sure. So I've been working um, with the Farm Prisoner Support Service for uh, well over a decade, nearly two now. And we assist um, people who are imprisoned in a country other than their own, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners, people who are kidnapped and missing. And I also am the uh, death penalty coordinator. So any cases, um, whether they're I'm in the United States or anywhere around the world. I run those death penalty uh, cases, helping to defend those on death row. And they might be cases in the United States of someone who's been wrongly accused of murder, right through to people caught up in the war on terror and any sorts of other cases. And it, it was discussing one of those cases, Amy was actually interviewing me about an African-American guy I represent, Rodney Reed, Mm. who's on death row in Texas. And it was during that interview that um, Amy realised there was some similarities between the case she knew about in Australia and Rodney's case. And after the interview, she just asked me, would I represent this Aboriginal man in Rockhampton prison, Kevin Henry? And I said yes, and that really is how we, we kicked off um, working together. 
Yeah, and this collaborative work um, has recently also taken the form of working on cases of disappeared, and that's in quotation marks, Indigenous women in so-called Australia. And I really appreciated Amy's use of this term in her December 14th Substack piece, and I was wondering if maybe you could speak to some of this invisibilised crisis and how your work has taken a turn in that direction. The work on this issue actually started at the very beginning of Kurtma podcast. I've worked on cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, in the past, as well as um, missing women overseas. And when we first started working on Curtin, we were looking at similar cases that had happened in the town of Rockhampton in Queensland. And just to give people a little bit of background, Kevin Henry was wrongly accused of murdering a woman in Rockhampton in the early 90s. And there was also an unsolved case that had occurred in a very similar manner in the 70s where an Aboriginal woman had been murdered as well. So it's always been very much front and centre for us both. But recently there's been two inquests into Aboriginal women in Queensland who were murdered uh, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And since um, we've been able to get Kevin out, it's enabled us to focus more of our attention on this issue. Yeah, and... It, it, oh, go on. And, it, it, look, it's, it's really a massive issue. As I say, there was a, a case that occurred in Rockhampton in the 70s, then again in the 90s, and that's just one small town in, in Queensland. And there's probably at least five other cases like it that we know in that town. In the town I live in, in New South Wales, it's the same. And so people can begin to imagine when you have small towns around the country where you have multiple cases of Aboriginal women who have been murdered or forcibly disappeared, then the numbers really start to add up to an alarming rate and yet very little work has been done and no one's really talking about it. Yeah, and this really speaks to the kind of dual focus of, of Curtin, the podcast as well, where you were looking not just at you know, justice for Kevin Henry, but also justice for the woman whose life had been taken and really the the serious misconduct and lack of regard for, for her life, which is horrible and tragic and, as you've mentioned, fairly widespread. And you've had consent from families that you've been working with to discuss some of these issues, and I'm hoping you could speak to some of their tireless work and how that labour is repeated across so many Indigenous communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the opportunity to work with Kevin Henry and work with the Aboriginal community in and around Rockhampton and Warrabinda was a really good experience for me because it took me outside of my local area and opened me up to a place nearly 2,000 kilometres away where, just like where I'm from, there were families by the dozens who were dealing with these issues where too often that have been completely ignored by the police and they've gone years without anybody assisting them. They've been ignored by the media. Um, often in a number of cases the police have been involved in the disappearance of the woman or the child. And so one of the things that's really common is that the the trauma that the families live with, but also the fact that they've had no assistance at all. 
and that really it's hard to find a term to to describe it accurately but that really grates at them and eats away at these families and communities so much and so it's often a big relief when we are able to at least offer to help and I think the thing the families do incredibly well is to keep the memory of their loved one alive. They keep speaking about that person amongst themselves, amongst their community. In one particular case I'm working on at the moment, the families have acted as if they're investigators and lawyers and police all for themselves, um, getting affidavits and stat decks from potential witnesses, following up leads, um, trying to get other people to come forward and harassing the police just to simply try and do their job. So it it becomes all-consuming because unlike the rest of society who has this swarm of help come along, as we saw with little Cleo Smith in Western Australia, which is what we want to see. We want to see um, search and rescue. We want to see the right services provided to a family when someone disappears or is potentially murdered and unfortunately these families are forced to do all of that work themselves with the burden of it being their own loved one and it it is really a highly traumatic experience and one that marks generations and so a big part of what we try and do is simply to lift some of that weight from their shoulders and just start to do the work that they were already doing. And, of course, they've been put in this position because they're not receiving uh, assistance from the system that is purportedly there to support people through these circumstances and to, you know, to ask those hard questions and to track down um, any leads in order to find justice. And, you know, this is very clearly linked to those broader structural issues around policing in this country in terms of a real lack of regard for Indigenous lives and for pursuing justice for Indigenous people who have lost their lives. And so this also kind of links into those serious concerns around police investigating police and uh, issues around police record keeping, issues around uh, police following things up. And I'm wondering if you could unpack some of that in a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, it's an issue I think people are not aware and aware of enough in that not only do police investigate police, but they very much investigate their own friends. So this was one of the things that connected for Amy, um, the case of Rodney Reed in Texas and Kevin Henry in Rockhampton, Queensland. In Texas, Rodney was... Um, convicted of a crime that was committed, we say committed by a police officer, and then covered up by his friends, who were also police officers. In Rockhampton, the same thing happened to Kevin Henry, and uh, his confession was forced and taken with a gun at his head, and the overarching officer who should have been ensuring this sort of thing really does not happen. This is criminal behaviour, to say the least was someone who was known to do the same thing, pull guns on Aboriginal people. And then when it goes to other issues, so to give an example of one of the cases I'm working on at the moment, 
where an Aboriginal woman was missing and there was the potential for there to be CCTV that may have shown what had occurred to her. The police didn't gather that CCTV, nor did they ascertain triangulation of her phone records because it would have cost $500. So you have this double issue of the police being perpetrators of this violence as well as the people supposedly investigating this violence. And then a total lack of any humanity where they wouldn't even spend $500 to find a young Aboriginal woman. And that's just one example. So you're dealing with a, a system where they will go to less effort to find an Aboriginal person or assist an Aboriginal family than they will to find their own dog. And that is really the state of play. And until the general public accept that as the reality as it is, then we're really not going to be able to convince anyone or there to be independent investigating of the police themselves as well as independent investigation of any case that involved either police directly involved in the crime itself or a police cover-up or interference. Mm, you make a really important point there about this level of public belief and public will to engage with just how horrific this disparity is in the valuing of Indigenous peoples' lives. And um, I was hoping that you could speak to some of the failures of the media around sounding the alarm about disappeared Indigenous women and what their role should be in this space. This is an, an issue that I think I would direct people to really read my colleague Amy McGuire on. If you go to her Substack page, she's written a number of times on this issue and the failure of the media. I think what the media does very often is that the police will put out a press release and the media will simply copy and paste it and, and that's that. Given all we know about black deaths in custody, given what we know about the Bowerville murders and the failure of the police, given what we know about the recent killings of Aboriginal women by police, and we're talking about unarmed Aboriginal women who hadn't committed a crime, and last time I checked, we didn't have the death penalty in this country. I think people would start to wonder why the media is not going after the police a little bit more. So I think the main thing the media can do is have some courage, is to investigate the police and look at their practices and their behaviours in the same way they sometimes do in regards to politicians. I would treat the police in the same way that they did the gangland murders in, in Victoria, in that really break down what the Victoria police and the police right around this country do in a forensic manner and don't simply take them at their word. And I think that's where it really begins is do not assume that those in these positions of power and who wear uniform are telling the truth. Their press releases are often filled with basic inaccuracies. You don't simply have to believe what I say or what someone else in the Aboriginal community says. Simply just start to have a look at it. Mm. And I think if the media begin to do that, then we can begin to make some progress. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that critical media literacy for people is so important as well, which is why I would also encourage people to check out Amy McGuire's Substack uh, because there's a lot on, you know, reading between the lines of the way that these things are reported and how cases are effectively prosecuted in the media to, uh, to paint uh, Aboriginal victims of crime in a particular way. Just to wrap up, where can people support the work that you and Amy do and listen to Kurt in the podcast? Yeah, we would love people to listen to the podcast. You can find Kurt and the Podcast at KurtandThePodcast.com or Spotify, on iTunes, really anywhere you get a podcast. Uh, people can support our work if they would like on Patreon, which they can find on our website or our social media. But the main thing I would say is just to really encourage people to engage with these issues that happen locally and around them. Wherever you live in Australia, there are going to be Aboriginal families grieving loved ones who have been taken by the system at the moment. And so look around you where you are and support those families, support the communities and and do what you can to amplify their voices. But look, honestly, sometimes the best thing you can do is simply to donate money. Um, We live in a system where money talks and it's something as a community we don't have. So if people can support in that way, it makes a huge difference. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Martin. And we'll chuck some links in our show notes as well to places like the Dajwa Foundation too. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.27 in the morning, and you just heard an interview with Martin Hodgson, who's a senior advocate at the Foreign Prisoners Support Service and co-host of Curtin the Podcast, talking about the shameful crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Australia and the fight for justice and to draw attention to systemic discrimination in the Australian justice system. Now, uh, this interview did contain some distressing content, and if you need to speak with someone about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's one three one 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 four. A proud black man, proud black man, should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people, and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at one p.m. on three CR. Proud black man, proud black man, should not wonder. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next we've got Inez. Inez, are you there? Hey, thanks, Rosie. <laughs> so, little technical. Um, but yeah, we are joined here today by Pan from the Latrobe University's Casual Network, a group of casualized workers at Latrobe who are dedicated to improving working conditions. They join us today to speak on the widespread systemic wage theft of casual staff and the network's recent submission to the Senate Select Committee of Job Security. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Pan. Sorry, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for getting, <laughs> thanks for getting up so early as well. Appreciate it. Um, how about we jump straight in? Um, and I know that you have been doing, and the whole network has been doing a lot of advocacy around the underpayment of casual staff, and it's clear that it's systemic and widespread at La Trobe University. Would you mind briefly speaking on how underpayment actually occurs? Sure. Yeah, no, you're very right to say it's um, systemic. Um, it's also, I should 
start by saying it's not just Latrobe. This is a sector-wide issue and the kinds of the way that wage theft and exploitation of casuals manifests at Latrobe is very similar to other um, universities and I want to salute the other, you know, casual networks that have been taking their fight um, about wage theft to, you know, to management. Yeah. Um, I'll focus on sort of the three kind of main ways that we, we've identified um, as part of the survey that our casuals network did in 2020 um, that we highlighted in the recent um, Senate inquiry. So it's usually through the use of illegal peace rates um, the misclassification of work and then just simply not being paid um, for essential work, um, such as like attending lectures or supporting students um, outside the classroom, responding to emails and things like that. Um, so at Latrobe, it's pretty standard that, you know, casuals aren't paid to attend things like uh, marking meetings um, or essential lunches and emails and sending emails and supporting students um, outside of classrooms. Um, our work is misclassified, so, um, you know, sometimes we're paid um, at the incorrect lower rate um, for the work that we've done. So at Latrobe, this often happens with course or curriculum development. Um, and then the, the last one is the use of illegal peace rates, um, which has been the focus of um, the NTU's um, recent uh, dispute that they've lodged with Latrobe University. Um, so what I mean by peace rates is um, although uh, we're meant to be legally paid um, for every hour worked and by the hour, um, for marking, particularly at the show, people are often um, given a predetermined uh, number of hours that they're told to clean. And yeah. um, this often is about um, at the show, but you're meant to spend 45 minutes per student, per semester for marking. Um, which is ridiculous and obviously takes longer than that, and so people end up working for free. Yeah, that speaks to um, such a concerning systemic issue, and I feel like also from that survey, um, there were there were quite a few like parts of that. And it, yes, things that you have highlighted, but I think the most illuminating part of that um, for me personally, reading through it, was that. 32% of the 140 respondents had been instructed to actually fill in their timesheets inc- inaccurately, and also 49%, which is almost half, feared repercussions if they asked to be paid for their hours' work. And, you know, a- as you've said, um, not only at Latrobe, but other universities, you know, with, uh, I think it's 21 out of the country's 40 universities are under investigation for wage theft. Um, I know that conducting the survey maybe were things that you already knew <laughs> and were aware of, but I think also conducting the survey, was there something that came to light or kind of put all the pieces for everybody together? Yeah, no, and we were very grateful, I think, for all the casuals that um, responded to the survey and put in their experiences. I think the pieces that you highlighted, um, yeah, were really confirmed what we kind of already knew, but were very damning of the, the fact that race theft is so entrenched and so widespread and so systemic all across the university yeah. um, that that 49% of people who said they would fear repercussions just to be asked, just to be asking, not demanding, just saying they should perhaps be paid for all the hours worth is yeah. just atrocious and unacceptable. Um, and yeah, the the people that spoke of the workers that spoke of constantly being asked to claim less than what they should be paid. 
and then the person who, um, the worker who was told that they, basically told that they're expected to mark 1,200 papers over the semester for free. It absolutely should not be happening. Um, so, yeah, we thank everyone that responded to the survey and I feel like, yeah, that, that one in four uh, statistic from the respondents about people that feared repercussions, I think it clearly demonstrates that there is this widespread culture of, yeah, systemic wage theft and casuals being afraid to, to speak up. Yeah, it feels like that um, amount of marking in that time is, one, not feasible, but also the fact that it is being essentially like forced upon people to do that unless they fear losing their jobs or not being paid what they're worth. And I, Yeah, it feels like such a vulnerable position to be in. And I know that our, like, yeah, our workforce is becoming increasingly casualised, very clear during COVID, and casual workers obviously are left in a very very vulnerable position where the payment obviously does not affect, reflect the hours that are fulfilled. Uh, I think also with COVID, we saw a big hit to the university sector, especially with international students. What effects do you think COVID has had on casual university workers and also at students at um, La Trobe and other universities? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, you're absolutely right. COVID has been a huge crisis for the higher education sector We've seen so many jobs um, and so many cuts um, go, and I obviously want to make the point that you know the erosion of you know casualisation is also about the erosion of working conditions for for permanent and fixed term staff as well. Um, at Latrobe, at the start of the pandemic in 2020, I think we got there was like a mass email to casuals that said, um, "At the end of the month, you'll find out whether you've been deemed essential or non-essential." So casuals were basically told that we are disposable um, at this time of crisis and great uncertainty. It was disgusting. Um, you know, and I think that the survey um, data that we collected just demonstrated how much worse and intensified that systemic wage theft and, and non-payment for casual work um, was. So, you know, there was like testimonials from casuals talking about um, all the work that it took um, to deliver teaching in that shift to online um, through Zoom and all the email support and support for students that they had to do that, you know, was completely unpaid. Um, and at La Trobe and as at other universities where there's been, um, you know, staffing cuts, um, we everyone knows that workloads are out of control at Australia's universities. So when those jobs return, um, they will return as insecure, casualised yeah. jobs and um, yeah, insecure roles. And um, yeah, so COVID has just been it really exacerbated an already existing systemic problem. Yeah. I think also being made to feel as if you're a cognitive machine and that you're a number and that um, your time and your skills and your values don't matter is incredibly disheartening. Uh, and I also, I think I remember um, other casuals got an email saying like, on Are You Okay Day, just like, look out for your mental health, <laughs> which just seems yep. so, so, um, so almost unfair <laughs> and yeah, just completely tasteless, honestly. On that note, at Latrobe, we've often, um, there's often been these things called wellness days yep. where casuals are just being totally excluded because, of course, we don't get 
leave. We don't we don't get the kind of entitlement. So yeah, it's just a real um, insult, really, to casual workers who have been, you know, like many of us, like casualisation is bad for mental health. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yep. Um, and also touching on that, I know that you know other university casual networks have been doing incredible work and. You've also had a re- – the network has had a recent submission to the Senate Select Committee of Job Security, and in the submission you call for a systemic, transparent, and accountable investigation process. What does, I guess, an accountable investigation process look like? And I know part of that also includes the aftermath of contacting and paying workers. Mm. Yeah, so in over 2000 and 2001, the – Latrobe University has kind of initiated its own internal review um, about what they are calling underpayment. Um, The entire nature of the review has completely, massively dismissed and underplayed the full extent of rape theft at Latrobe, but across the sector, of course. Um, It really frames the issue as one of poor systems and processes, um, that it's sort of this accident or error or admin issue. And we saw this this very week um, at the Senate inquiry, so wage theft, it was presented as um, an error. And also casual workers were also kind of um, blamed for potentially being responsible by putting in incorrect information or pinning this kind of on our our managers. Um, It definitely doesn't, you know, recognise that this is systemic, entrenched, and it's a system that's been designed on purpose this way. Yeah. So what we are we, what we are saying is we want this review and this attempt to come up with new marking formulas to just completely pause. Casuals do not have faith in this process, um, and we haven't been meaningfully um, involved um, in the internal audit or review. Yep. Many people would probably have seen the results of the review in December last year. But Latrobe announced that um, there would be um, uh, underpayment of wages um, from the last six-year period of $3.5 million. Yep. That is not even the tip of the iceberg <laughs> in terms of what workers are owed um, at Latrobe as a result of the that process. So some casual staff were getting emails saying, you have not been underpaid or you have been underpaid $100. And, we, you know, there is um, what, you know, just one casual worker who had estimated and calculated, actually, they are owed $50,000 of um, wage wage theft, basically. So as a response, we are saying, you know, we're we're demanding we need need that to be paused. We need a transparent, independent inquiry to look at the real, true, full uh, extent of wage theft at Latrobe. And that means um, consulting with casuals, contacting all former staff to uncover their wages, a formal apology and a guarantee that will abolish the use of peace rates. We need to be paid for every hour work. Yeah. Um, so that's what we um, are proposing instead. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think, yeah, it's completely horrendous um, the way casuals have been treated and that, you know, there is not even the tip of the iceberg and it is a systemic institutionalised system that is, you know, set up to make profit. And, yeah, I think it's really illuminating this interview. I think also just uh, wrap up for the last question, uh, how do you think that, uh, you know, listeners uh, or, you know, if people think that they are also uh, victims of wage theft, um, how can people support themselves or, um, yeah, support underpayment of casuals? 
Yeah, so in terms of like, um, you know, our casual network, it really helps when people um, amplify our calls for support and, you know, our demands to be to be treated with respect and paid for the work that we do fairly. Um, if you, you know, you work in a university or you know people that do, you should definitely tell them about the, that there's a waste desk uh, dispute at Latrobe. Yep. So any casual who's worked at Latrobe in the last six years and done marking work, um, they, they don't have to still be at working at Latrobe, um, is potentially covered by the claim. So please let people know. Um, we will, for us, we've also got an open letter. So we really are encouraging all supporters, and that includes you know, people that work at the university in, you know, fixed term or ongoing roles to, to sign and support. Um, and in terms of where, you know, where you can find out more about the kind of resources that we've developed or information that we have on, from our perspective on WaveSest, um, you can do that. We're on Twitter, so at LTU Casuals. Um, and you can also, Casuals can also email us if they have Concerns or questions or want to be involved, um, we're LTU Casuals Network at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Fan. I really am appreciative of the time that you've spent to, you know, also be vulnerable and share uh, the calls that the network is doing as well as illuminating definitely systemic issues across the university sector. But uh, thank you so much. I hope you have a really good day. No, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. No worries. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Um, we've just heard from Penn from the Latrobe University's Casual Network, and they've spoken about improving working conditions and also uh, widespread systemic wage theft of casual staff and the recent submission to Senate Select Committee of Job Security. You can email them, follow them on Twitter, um, and also reach out to them if you are worried that you are a victim of wage theft by in the university sector as well. Thanks. <laughs> They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we are joined by Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre to discuss why Services Australia are spying on people receiving welfare payments and to talk about the Anti-Poverty Centre's ongoing campaign to abolish work for the dole. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. No worries. Good morning, Jay. Um, so on Tuesday, the Anti-Poverty Centre released an article responding to a report in the Canberra Times. Well, it was a blog post by you, and the headline of that Canberra Times article was Private Investigators to Spy on Welfare Recipients in Service Australia's Crackdown. Um, in your response, you make clear that spying on welfare recipients is actually nothing new, but could you tell us about that article and your response to it? Yeah, sure. So um, the Canberra Times article was just uh, reporting a Austender, uh proposal that was going out to you know, private investigators. They were looking at basically renewing the contract, is what we suspect, um, to hire private investigators to um, not only photograph uh, 
people in public who are on social security payments that they suspect are fraud, but also allow them to bug uh, people, whether that's in their homes, their workplaces, we're not too sure, as it wasn't clear. Um, and also in the article, basically they were just giving the space uh, to Hank Jongen, who is basically the, uh, you know, the spokesperson for Services Australia, but it's continuously uh portrayed in the media as someone more important, like a general manager. But if you go on this site, it's not. So basically the article itself was kind of perpetuating, you know, some of the issues with what the media does uh, in, you know, perpetuating the poverty machine is not accurately reporting the story. And we suspect that, you know, these surveillance programs are being ramped up potentially because of the higher number of people still on um, welfare payments because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So because of that, um, yeah, I kind of took the initiative to write a bit of a blog post about, you know, how we kind of get that to stop and the reasons for it. Mm, thank you. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point about potentially that, that kind of ramping up of the surveillance and also trying to get that message out there, I suppose, to try and get people off payments, kind of scare people as well. Um, one of the reasons a recipient may be targeted for surveillance is if they fail to declare their relationship. And you argue that not only, obviously, is the surveillance abhorrent, but that the partner income test is should also be abolished. And can you tell us about that particular hoop recipients have to jump through and why it should be scrapped? Yeah, so the main two points of uh, the blog that I put in was how we could, you know, end the surveillance um, pretty much altogether by just, you know, two simple technocratic little tricks. And it was to end the partner payment and also to increase um, the income-free area and uh, mm. the taper rate. But in terms of the partner income, um, so if you if you declare to simply that you are more in a relationship, uh, then that kind of, you have to prove to them that you're not in a relationship. So the terms of that are quite broad and confusing. Uh, they go into aspects of your sexual, personal life, but also the way in which people, you know, perform certain duties around the house and the, you know, the financial relationship between the two people. So, um, some, you know, some of those guidelines are quite broad in determining that. Um, and for example, you know, you know, if you live with someone, you don't necessarily have to be having sex with them in order to be determined to have a relationship. So, you know, you could simply be living with a, you know, a close friend, um, and you could easily be caught into that trap. So to have, um, you know, somebody spying on you and misrepresenting your relationship is one thing, but in this day and age, I think it's highly inappropriate that we're still guided by these, you know, Protestants and, you know, uh, religious values which don't really necessarily uh, have a hold over us anymore, particularly when these partner income rules uh, were determined, you know, were developed as quite sexist and paternalistic um, for, you know, single women after the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. It really begs the question of why these are still being considered at all. Um, we wanted to turn to asking you about the Abolish Work for the Dole campaign. And, um, you know, the notion of mutual obligations covers a wide range of activities, including work for the Dole, that people have to participate in to receive their payment. And for listeners that aren't that familiar about mutual obligations, and that would be any listener who hasn't heard our many interviews with yourself and Kristen over <laughs> the past month, could you give us an example of a program and explain why mutual obligations are not only cruel, but actually an impediment for many people to finding work? 
Yeah, so the best explanation of mutual obligations is they're just really a rat wheel for the poor. So you not only do you have to do your 20 job searches a month, but you also have to go in for appointments and the, the other th- with your job agent. So that might mean once a month, or it depends uh, how whether or not they like you because they could force you to come in once a week. So there's no real you know, determination, um, and even sending you to really kind of pathetic programs about how to dress for work, how to, you know, put on deodorant is one, you know, pretty ridiculous one that I've heard. But then there's the more, you know, onerous ones, which are like, you know, work for the doll, which is, which is what the campaign is about, where it's basically a forced labour program. Um, where people have to go out and, you know, whether it's to work in a cemetery mowing the grass and cleaning up graves or, uh, you know, sorting through bags of clothes out the back of a salvos, uh, people do this um, for, you know, $20 a fortnight extra on top of their payments, which is, you know, still about half the poverty line. So, um, yeah, and because of all this extra labour that you're taking up, it's obviously bleeding into the time that you could actually be doing proper studying or, you know, pursuing paths in which you, you know, uh, to find employment that you'd like to do. Mm, Yeah, and it really is like, you know, this labour exploitation is, I think, such a crucial way of framing this because it is about, um, I guess, extracting labour from, um, you know, unemployed workers uh, for a you know, a very minimal cost to the government and effectively maintaining this underclass um, where people are, you know, not taken seriously as workers because they're not being treated as workers. Um, and there have been really horrendous stories of mutual obligations also coming out of the hearings at the Disability Royal Commission, um, and there's a hearing currently going on this week. And some listeners might be surprised to know that people on the disability support pension are also subject to quite strict mutual obligations, as you've outlined earlier. So can you give us a bit of an update on some of what's coming out of these hearings and how that, um, you know, that concern about uh, labour exploitation intersects with disability discrimination? Yeah, so yesterday was the first of uh, three hearings. The second was, uh, second today and the third tomorrow. Um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, disabled folks, uh, in the social security system, we know that there are about nearly 400,000 people currently on the job seeker payment and not the disability support payment who, uh, have some form of a disability that is either recognised, but we don't know the number of those who are not, who don't have a recognised disability. And the reason that these people kind of you know, these disabled folks are stuck on this payment is because of workforce discrimination. So they're essentially being cycled in and around, um, you know, poor, uh, poor employment. But um, for those who are, you know, dare I say, lucky enough uh, to escape the Job Active Program, which is the more mainstream program to the Disability Employment Service, there are less mutual obligations, um, but it's still nevertheless it's strict. So what we found... What we heard about yesterday in uh, the Disability Royal Commission uh, hearing is a, a, a person who was basically forced to set up a, a, a fake cafe um, in order to train uh, other, you know, people uh, who were on job active um, in this. It was quite ridiculous. Uh, the photo was basically an empty office space with, like, a home coffee machine um, and the person who was paid to set it up, uh, you know, had to go and buy their milk with their own money, uh, which they later were reimbursed for. But as we found out, basically the job agency was running this kind of, 
untransparent web of companies where they were not only claiming the outcome payment for finding this person employment, but they were also getting outcome payments for sending their clients to this program to get education outcomes, and it was all feeding back. Um, and last night, uh, we, as reported in The Guardian, this company uh, made nearly $1 million in payments from the government running this shoddy uh, training program and claiming outcome payments through this. So, you know, this is quite, uh, you know, it's something that a lot of people have known for a while, but when the lid kind of gets blown on just how corrupt and, you know, untransparent this system is, uh, it's, you know, really, really, really concerning that, you know, it's not just $1 million with one agency, it's, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars over the past, you know, six years, really. Well, that's right. As you say, it's not something that people haven't known about, but it is just continually disgusting and shocking just how much money is being made out of, you know, the poverty machine and, and, and keeping people um, in poverty, um, living under the poverty line, and then these companies and organisations making huge profits out of that system. It's really abhorrent. Um I just wanted to ask, Jay, could you tell listeners about the campaign that you are running um, around Work for the Dole and, you know, if people have been on these programs and have been subject to mutual obligations, whether they can get involved in that campaign? Yeah, for sure. So the Abolish Work for the Dole campaign um, kind of just been set up with the Anti-Poverty Centre and uh, Jeremy Poxon, which people might know from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, he is kind of headlining that campaign and what we're seeking to do is basically to raise awareness about you know, work for the doll. So at the moment we're just kind of getting started um, and we're going to begin developing materials to you know share with people to mobilise at their work for the doll sites, to speak to their local government who uh, do host work for the doll but also other not-for-profits who do. So it's just a bit of an awareness raising slow build-up campaign. Um, but one part we're also doing is uh, running a survey. So if they're Anyone who has done work for the doll or just simply been in with an employment services provider when they got their job seeker or new start payment, just asking you to fill out a survey about your experience of forced labour, any abuse or harassment, and we're going to you know compile a pretty cohesive report um, into that, um, which is underway at the moment. So you can find out, uh, find the survey uh, and more information about the campaign at antipovertycentre.org um, and there will be a tab for the Abolish Work for the Dole campaign there. So, um, yeah, and on there you can find contact information and details for us and we can get in touch and have a chat if you can. Great. Thank you so much, Jay, for speaking with us this morning. And, yeah, I've seen a few um, Twitter posts of some of those stories coming out of that survey and it looks like it's going to be really important for compiling people's experiences of um, those programs. Yeah, totally. Thanks again for joining us. That was Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre joining us to talk on Thursday Breakfast about why Services Australia are spying on people receiving welfare payments and also to talk about their campaign to abolish work for the doll. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Hello, I'm Ayan Shirwat the host of 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. If you're a long-time 3CR listener, what is up? And if you're a new listener, welcome. 
3CR is home to 400 volunteers and over 126 programs. Every year, we bring you stories that concern all of us. The workers, the unemployed, folks from all walks of life. And unlike the corporate shills, our funding comes directly from the community. In return, we shine the spotlight on stories about the climate crisis, Indigenous communities' fight for sovereignty, Palestinian perspectives, and any of the music or art programs 3CR champions. To help your favourite grassroots media stay on air, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and up next we're going to an interview with Malika. Thanks, Rosie. Um we are now joined by Fetla, who is an Ethiopian-Australian woman based in Nam, interested in dissecting ideas at the intersection of race, spirituality and communion. She's an emerging artist, writing and producing music, spoken word and sound art. Fetla joins us to speak about her new piece as part of the Signal Sound Walk. Hi Fetla, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, super excited. Um, I guess, could you tell us a bit more about the Signal Sound Walk Sound and Spoken Word Showcase and what it has been like creating and participating in this process. Yeah, sure. Um, it's been so fun. And honestly, like, I randomly applied on the last day because one of my friends um, made a story about it. And so, yeah, I applied to this summer intensive run by Signal. And I think they have a few for under 25, so would definitely recommend. Um, and basically, as a part of that course, it was five full days of workshops facilitated by a sound artist, Ben Na, and spoken word artist, uh, Tobani Schumer. Um, and so, yeah, they taught us all about sound art, how to produce your own work with Reaper, um, walked us through some, like, writing exercises and things like that. And at the end, we had an opportunity to submit a piece we came up with um, or were working on throughout the workshop. So, yeah, it was really great, enriching experience that I would recommend to anyone. Uh, yeah, it sounds really great. And could you tell us a bit more about what led you to creating your piece, which you finally submitted through the program, Cabarro? Yeah, sure. Um, so to be honest, like the whole time I was like, oh my God, what am I going to submit? Like, I have no idea. Um, but one thing that kept coming up for me was like a, a rhythm that I really wanted to use, which is from... Um, a traditional Ethiopian church drum, which is called the kabaro. And so I had that idea of using that sample, I guess. Um, and so the whole piece morphed around that idea of, you know, faith and culture through that symbol of the Ethiopian church drum that I would listen to, um, I guess, at church with my family and, and community. So, yeah. 
And I guess like leading into my next question, curious to know where did you get the audio that was weaved into your spoken word piece? Yeah, so that was like a super cool thing that I learned about and some of the funnest bit of like putting everything together. Um, so as part of the sound course, like, you know, we learned about sound art and how to get sounds that were royalty free. So sounds that you could use legally, I guess, um, and, you know, using your art. And so I found a couple of websites. Uh, through the course, one called freesound.org and one called freemusicarchive.org and oh my god, like it, you can spend hours just, you know, finding amazing sounds that you can use and I really was aiming to use as many sounds as possible from Ethiopia or recorded in Ethiopia and so I was really surprised to find and didn't expect to find really um, any of those like quite like niche sounds but I did so yeah head to like freesound.org or freemusicarchive.org if you want to if you want to suss out um some six sounds and you might not expect to find what you want but it might be there so give it a try that's so good because as I was listening through your piece I was like wow did she secretly fly home to Ethiopia and like <laughs> record this from her local church or something and why was it important for you to center your piece around faith and tradition and culture yeah that's that's a great question I think like I guess it did start off with that Ethiopian church drum, but I have been thinking about faith um, and my culture, you know, just by, like, growing up in Australia and everything. You, you definitely be thinking about your connection to culture and different mediums by which, you know, that's a thing, I guess. But, yeah, I think I've definitely been thinking about faith for a long time because when I was younger we would go to church um, in Maribyrnong actually shout out to the west side <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah like I would go to church and like play with other kids and it was so fun and everything and so I didn't really you know as a kid understand that oh there's this whole like serious business of worshipping and like praying and all of that thing kind of going on um, and so as I got older I was we didn't go to church as much, but I guess my parents were um, more personally, like, spiritual in that kind of way. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't know if you get it, Malika, but there's sometimes that immigrant child guilt, at least that I experience, of maybe not needing God or faith as much as people back home might um, because of all of the privileges and and things that we have here. Um, and so, yeah, I had all of these questions and I was trying to process some things, but I definitely have always felt in my life a feeling of a spiritual presence. Um, and yeah, this piece, is it, it was really nice to explore that and process that through sound, art and, and music. So yeah, that's, that's what birthed the piece really. No, that's absolutely beautiful. It sounds like it was almost like a weird journaling exercise of just like tapping into your inner child and exploring what it means to be connected to faith and culture and tradition and your ancestry and all of those things and um it it really is a beautiful piece like I found when I was listening to it um I felt so relaxed it was almost like a meditation or a mindfulness piece because you felt so connected to the story you were telling through that process was that the intention for you whilst you were kind of creating the piece to have that almost like 
calming Zen aspect to it? Yeah, I think, um, I guess maybe subconsciously, like I wanted to feel that kind of like gentle process um, or feeling um, throughout the piece uh, and then rev it up towards the end with the drums and things like that. So I'm really, really glad that you felt that as well, listening to it. Um, yeah, thank you. No, it was really, really wonderful. And for people that want to check out your piece um, and as well as all of the other pieces as part of Signal Sound Walk, where can they find it like online and in person? Yeah, cool. So it actually is playing a few times a day um, at the Signal Sound Walk along North Bank, uh, which is sort of behind Flinders Street. Um, and there's 30 to 40 speakers sort of playing it on loop. Um, yeah, you can find it in the city until the 28th of Feb. So if you're walking, um, have a sus, like go the scenic route. <laughs> oh, definitely recommend, uh, <laughs> definitely recommend. Yeah, the scenic and the sonic route. Um, and then, yeah, you can also find it at the Signal Arts SoundCloud um, alongside all of the other amazing pieces. And please check them out. It was so cool to just listen to everyone's pieces that they came up with by the end of the course. And, yeah, came out with some nice friendships and stuff. I was like, oh, this is so awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope you enjoy. And also definitely shout out to Signal Arts, which is run by the City of Melbourne. They... They run heaps of programs like this, and I'm really glad that I cross paths with them. So, yeah, if you're under 25, they do, like, keeps the arts programs and things. Just apply and see what happens. You'll learn some stuff. You'll be able to share some stuff. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your art with us today, Fetla. And, yeah, definitely, listeners, check it out. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, but, yeah, thanks again for joining us this morning, Fetla. No worries. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on the radio with you, Malika. Thank you. Um, You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard from Fetla, who's an Ethiopian-Australian woman based in Nam, interested in dissecting ideas at the intersection of race, spirituality, and communion, and they joined us this morning to speak about her new piece as part of the Signal Sound Walk. We are listeners and I'll show followers who we are. Subscribe Drive Week between 14th to 20th February. We invite you to subscribe and be one of our financial supporters. Super easy ways to subscribe or renew your subscription. You can visit our website 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or you can call the station on 94198377. Please subscribe today. $75 and wait. $75 weight and $150 solidarity band or organization. Dear 3CR Radio and Nile Show listeners, your support with the annual subscription guarantees the financial independence of 3CR Radio. We are proud to be owned by the community and managed by the community. Thank you for your support. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. 
We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and up next we're speaking with Omar Seka, the author of two acclaimed poetry collections, These Wild Houses and The Lost Arabs, the second of which was, which was awarded the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. And Omar is joining us this morning to talk about his new novel, Son of Sin, which is out now with a firm press. Good morning, Omar. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Firstly, I just want to say congratulations on the book. Um, I said off air, but it really is a beautiful book, and I feel very lucky to have got to read it already, um, and I'm going to be going around telling everyone else to read it. So um, to begin, it's your first novel. You've previously published two books of poetry, as I said, as well as essays and short stories. Could you just introduce listeners to the story you're telling in this book and why writing fiction or what writing fiction has allowed you to do differently to poetry? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, fiction, okay, I'll start with the story. And the story is, uh, you know, it's a coming-of-age novel uh, about Jamal Smith, a young queer Arab Muslim in Western Sydney. And it kind of follows him over um, 10 to 15 years of his life from teenage years um, onward and yeah just kind of allows you to see how he deals with uh the world that is kind of set against him and his family who are uh in migrants um and uh who are homophobic as well mm, yeah thank you um and the book's pre- prefaced that he, um, yeah, starts the book is signed by that main character Jamal, and he's speaking about how um, about story, and he talks about how his uncle told him, "quote My life should be a novel, isn't it?" Um, and this is just one of like a cast of characters. There's so many beautiful, tender portrayals um, of characters in this book, um, and they almost it's it's like they're, they're, they've all got so much story. It could it could be a novel. Each of them could be a novel or exceed a novel. And I was wondering, you know, why it was important for you that each character had this kind of depth and that they are portrayed as really storied, even if you know they're not the ones writing that story. Yeah. Um, growing up, look, every single adult that I came across said to me that their lives should be a novel. Um, when I became aware of the fact that, you know, I was interested in writing, it was like, you should write my story. Um, and look, every single one of them was right. Every single one of them, um, has lived a life, um, that is extraordinary. Um, and so, yeah, it was really important to me that, um, I try my best to give that sense in the book to to everyone. 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I said the other day that there is such a thing as an empty mundanity, um, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that is to say that you can write the mundane um, but still have it replete with meaning mm-hmm. so long as you're attendant to uh, your relationship to daily life. Um, because what's mundane to me is extraordinary to others and vice versa. Yeah, well, I mean, if there's any lesson from poetry, isn't it? It's like that the mundane can be, you know, so beautiful and so full of meaning. Um, I wanted to ask about place in the novel. So, as you said, the novel is predominantly set in Western Sydney, and um, I really noticed these scenes where um, Jamal is driving around in a car or walking or running through streets, and you describe each of these houses where people have lived or land local landmarks where certain events have happened. Um, and I wanted to ask about how the house or the home seem to be the unit of measure um, of place for you in the novel. Yeah, I think it's more about where people are as opposed to the structure that they're in. Um, and when you have lived in an area all your life, uh, you know where people are, right? You know um, where they've been, where they're going to. Um, and, yeah, it was really key to me. I don't drive. Um I've always been driven around Mm. or I've walked to where I needed to get to or I've caught the bus and then the train, you know. Um, And so, uh, and this is is true for many people I know. Uh, And so I wanted to have that kind of movement and that travel, even so local as it is, uh, kind of embedded uh, in in the novel. Yeah, I think that really was very present, the, f- the feeling of moving around a place and, um, yeah, that place not being, you know, not being that far from, from a home or whatever. But, I don't know, the space um, really came alive or the place really, yeah, it felt, it felt like um, you're moving around. On that question um, of home, it kind of is weaved through the novel, you know, what is a home? Is home safe? Um, how do things like migration or war or poverty or sexuality shape our notions of home? And how can you be at home in yourself? Or um, I was wondering if you wanted to speak to that idea of home, if that resonates for you with, in, in the work. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really foundational. I think this is kind of what I keep returning to. And I don't really have a fixed answer. Um, I want to have one, but <laughs> it's why I keep coming back to the page and mm. keep trying to find it. Um, yeah, I is home safe? No, no, I don't. I don't think it is, and I'm also not even sure that it should be. <laughs> Um, because the world isn't safe, right? Mm. Uh, and I think I, I say in the book, um, that maybe home just needs to be the place 
where you can put yourself together. Mm. Um, and so if the world breaks you, home has to be the place where you can heal. Mm. Um, thank you. I also thought in the novel the portrayal of the friendship between the three friends, Jamal, Ilo and Emiya, was really beautiful and very complex. Um, the love of those friends, you know, and especially these kind of friendships that begin in childhood and teenagehood, they're so dense. You know, there's there's pleasure, pain, cruelty, there's care, there's generosity, there's laughter. Um, and that friendship really kind of follows through the whole novel. Could you speak about this friendship in the novel? I know it possibly also reflects your real life, but why these why these relationships kind of became the one one of the hearts of this book let's say yeah it's as you say it does reflect my life and my closest queer friends who I grew up with in western sydney i mean i uh i love them dearly and and i i would not have made it through life without them and and likewise they would not have made it without me um and this is something that we have affirmed to each other many times. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of showcase a number of relationships over time in this novel is because of the way I think we can get stuck in them, mm. um, stuck in this kind of habitual um, play uh the script that that kind of gets written over time um so that these teen friendships are still acting in a kind of teenage way even when they're in their 20s and you know heading toward their 30s um and so that was one of the questions that I was trying to answer with this book is, is how do you break away from that script? How do you change? Yeah, I thought that I, and that's really recalling certain parts of the book where characters are acting in a way that they recognize maybe isn't, isn't what they want to be doing, but somehow we do get stuck in, in repeating these behaviors in relation to certain people. Um, but yeah. that idea of like growth of a relationship and that, relationships can can change um is you know i guess if we're talking about home as as potentially somewhere that can heal i feel like within the complexity of relationships that that is one of those places too yeah look and it's really it's a really hard thing to do because you're essentially saying um i want to be different i want us to be different to the thing that enabled us to survive what initially made us love each other is no longer working mm. yeah um look there's so much in this book that i could ask about but i i really do think people should just go out and um get a copy from the library or buy a copy if they can um before we wrap up did is there any uh other writers or um, artists that you've been reading or looking at, poets that you would like to shout out? Um, yeah, absolutely. I 
Take Care by Eunice Andrade, I think, is an extraordinary poetry collection. Mm. Um, people should go and read that. Uh, How to Make a Basket by Jazz Money, uh, another great poetry book. Go out and read that. Um, Still Alive by Sastar Ahmed, um, I think, is an extraordinary um, graphic memoir um, that says an enormous amount about uh, Australia. Um, so those are three books, I think. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so just to fi- finish off, where can listeners find your book and are there other ways that they can um, follow you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can get it, I think, in pretty much any bookstore. Um, you can get it in Big W. Uh, you, can, you can get it in airport stores. It's um, For me, this is the first book that I've had that is so widely available. So um, there are e-books and audio book versions as well. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Great. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, um, for listeners who do go into a bookstore, it's a beautiful bright pink cover, so it, it's kind of unmissable on the shelf, I'd say. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Omar, on Thursday Breakfast. Oh, thank you for having me. And just then we spoke with Omar Seka, the author of two acclaimed poetry collections, These Wild Horses and The Lost Arabs, the second of which was awarded the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. And Omar joined us today to talk about his new novel, Son of Sin, which is out now. And just wanted to let listeners know that we are doing a giveaway of Son of Sin because we have a copy for one of our listeners. Uh, it could be you, the first person to call and subscribe to 3CR or renew their subscription gets a free copy of Son of Sin. So you can do that by ringing 0394198377. That's 0394198377 to subscribe or renew your subscription and, um, Hopefully, we'll be sending this book out to somebody soon. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You are back on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855am and we're coming up to the end of the show, but we're coming up very leisurely, which is a surprise for us. Incredibly surprising for a five-segment show to have a leisurely wrap-up. And I think 
This is just, you know, things are going smoothly and beautifully uh, as Rosie is paneling for her final show. <laughs> Don't say that. That's going to that's that's welcoming disaster. It's OK. I'm in the same room uh, for, for listeners. If you're concerned uh, about how paneling goes, I'm, I'm in the same room. I can troubleshoot and hopefully we can both just burn the whole station down by uh, our incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> so um, should we go through what we had on the show? for Sure. Listeners? Yep. So first up, um, I spoke with Martin Hodgson, who's a senior advocate at the Foreign Prisoners Support Service and co-host of Curtin the Podcast, along with South Sea Islander and Durham Ball writer and academic Amy McGuire. And Martin spoke with me about the shameful crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Australia and the work he's been doing with Amy and the families of these women to fight for justice and draw attention to systemic discrimination in the justice system. And again, if this interview did distress you and you need to speak with someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash curtain podcast as this supports the essential justice work that Martin and Amy do. And then we were joined by Pan from the Latrobe University's Casuals Network, a group of casualized workers at Latrobe who are dedicated to improving working conditions not just at Latrobe but throughout the university sector. They joined us to speak on the widespread systemic wage theft of casual staff and the network's recent submission to the Senate Select Committee of Job Security. Please keep update with them. And, yeah, I'll pass it along. Then we spoke with Jay Coonan, absolute friend of the show from the Anti-Poverty Centre, and they were joining us to talk about Services Australia spying on people receiving welfare payments and also to talk about the Anti-Poverty Centre's ongoing campaign to abolish work for the doll. Then we were joined by Fetla, who is an Ethiopian-Australian woman based in Nam, interested in dissecting ideas at the intersection of free spirituality and communion, and she joined us to speak about her new piece as part of the Signal Sound Walk, which you can check out um, in North Bank, behind Flinders Street Station. And finally, you just heard an interview with Omar Seka, the author of two acclaimed poetry collections, These Wild Houses and The Lost Arabs, which won the award. The award, which was awarded the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. And Omar joined us today to talk about his new novel, Son of Sin, which is out now with a firm press. And just a reminder that we do have a giveaway of Son of Sin. Very exciting. So that's for the first person who calls and subscribes to 3CR or renews their subscription, and they will get a free copy of the book. So you can do that by ringing 0394198377. That's 0394198377. And even though I'm in the studio right now, I can just imagine our phones are blowing up and the wonderful Gab is picking up calls of people that are you know, charging through the door to renew their subscriptions for this. And hey, you know, even if you don't get the book, you can still renew or subscribe to 3CR. It's a really, really great way um, to be involved in the station to support not only the work that the Breakfast team does, but also all the other programs, um, the language community language program, so many great things and important things happening on 3CR. So um, call up and subscribe or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Amazing. Also, shout out to Rosie for their last show um, today. They are literally one of the most incredible supports to the team and we're definitely going to miss you and all your funny stories in between all the different interviews thanks Malika um yeah no it's it's a it's sad to be um stepping out but I have have said I'm 
happy to come back and fill in, so um, I'm sure you won't <laughs> totally get rid of me. Um, but, yes, very big thanks to um, the breakfast team and um, my, my Thursday breakfast team and, and Gab, and also just I feel very, very honoured to have spoken to so many wonderful guests um, on the program, so much expertise, knowledge, and, um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful things and spoken about. So very, very grateful to um, be part of 3CR. Well, we have loved to have you, and, yeah, I'm sure we'll see you again soon, Rosie. Um, Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.